Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 80. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. Firstly, let me give my apologies to everybody. I have been remiss on getting new episodes out in a timely fashion. Uh, and, and I want to explain a little bit uh, of why. I've just been absolutely swamped with everything else going on in life. Uh, it is always my intention to get a weekly episode out, uh, but things have been crazy around here uh, and my time is divided uh, greatly. So I apologize. I promise to try to do better to get these interviews out to everybody. Uh, so uh, the, the hate mail can stop now. All joking aside, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. We have a great interview coming for you today. I am going to be joined by the great John DeChristopher right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by John DeChristopher here on the Drum Shuffle. Uh, John and I actually uh, kind of connected through one of the online drum forums, drumforum.org to be specific. Uh, but John uh, was the A&R rep at Zildjian for many, many years. Uh, and prior to that, he worked for Drum Workshop uh, in the A&R capacity. But John is now managing a few of the biggest names in drumming. And I had actually reached out to John to try to get Steve Gadd on the show. Now, uh, anybody that knows anything about drumming knows how hard that is going to be. And that's a big ask. 
Uh, but John very politely responded and said, hey, man, I'll do my best. Steve doesn't do a whole lot of press. But that kind of sparked up some back and forth between John and I. And I'm going to let him explain his background uh, to you throughout the course of this interview. Uh, but John has been in and around the industry for many, many years, and he is just, he has so much knowledge about drums and drumming, and he's a pretty darn good drummer himself. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, John DeChristopher. Hey, good afternoon, John. How's it going today? I'm doing really well, Jamie. Thanks. How are you? Man, I can't complain too much. John, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the drum shuffle. We really do appreciate that. My pleasure, and I, I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. So um, I, there's just so much uh, great knowledge and, and so many stories that, uh, that, that we'll peel into here in just a moment. But if you would uh, indulge me, Tell everybody kind of the backstory, you know, where, where did you grow up and how did you get into music to begin with? Well, I grew up in a little town called Melrose, Massachusetts. It's just north of Boston, about five miles north of Boston. And I started, <clears throat> excuse me, I started playing drums. Well, I was interested in music as a, as a small child, as I think most kids are. And um, I grew up in the 60s. And I was a little a little late to seeing the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. I was born in 1960, so I was too young to to actually see it live. But by the mid 60s, I was certainly aware of the Beatles, and then and then the Monkees came on TV in 1966, and that was actually very influential to me. Yeah, as a six year old kid to see you know a weekly TV show with musicians, not realizing they don't, didn't actually play their instruments, but <laughs> uh, you know who, who knew that back then. <laughs> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I mean, I think of that as one of my sort of early influences as far as wanting to be a drummer. And I just sort of put that on hold. And by the time I was about 11 years old, I, I really started, you know, seriously wanting to play. And I bought a pair of drumsticks. I had a paper route and uh, I bought a pair of drumsticks and, a, and a, someone gave me a practice pad. And I used to just practice and I didn't take lessons. I just played, you know, sort of tapped along the records and air drummed. And, um, my next door neighbor whose birthday is today, in fact, my, my best friend, Mike Mahoney, um, gave me an old snare drum that he had sitting around his house. He said, you know, you should, you should have this if you're going to really, you know, try to learn how to play the drum. So I, I had this snare drum for a few months and then for Christmas that year, my dad bought me a drum set. Okay. And my birthday is it's the week before Christmas. So it was, it was my 12th birthday and Christmas. I got a, a Sears drum set. Um, and so that was my first set and I just had at it. And, you know, I, I learned pretty quickly to play, you know, some basic stuff. And um, by the time I was 13, I was playing in a band with some friends, some kids from the neighborhood and, we actually started doing gigs and, you know, dances and things like that, parties. And, and I just got more and more serious and more and more intimate. And uh, I joined a band, a better band about a year after that. Um, and the, the interesting about that is I'm playing with some of those guys now, you know, 45 years later, almost. That's awesome. Some of the same. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really kind of went full circle and I, I don't want to 
drag the story out too long, but that was the beginning of it, you know, as a teenager. And, and it was really all I wanted to do, um, to the point of, of, you know, wanting to go to Berkeley and, and study in, in music school. And when it actually came time to do it, I wasn't, because I was self-taught and I had very little, um, sort of theory on reading. I, I had just a, a very basic sort of, uh, the, a drummer friend of mine had showed me some very basic, um, you know, bits about reading music. Um, I didn't end up going to Berkeley and I got a job at a music store in Boston Okay. when I graduated from high school. And that, that sort of sets me into a completely different story about how I eventually sort of got into working in the industry as a result of working at this music store in Boston called E. Wurlitzer. Um, and, and I was still playing and, uh, but there I met uh, a guy named Glenn Thomas. And now I'm fast forwarding. I'm, I'm jumping around a lot here, Jamie. So that, that, no, that's okay. <laughs> because I, I know, I know where it's going to end up. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this was 1982. And um, I'd been working at Wurlitzer at that point for almost three years. Um, I started working there, yeah, like the end of about this time, 1979. So like 40 years ago, crazily. Wow. And um, I know, I know, it's crazy to think that. So at that point, I was working at Wurlitzer. I was the drum department manager. I'd been promoted and I was playing in in my band and and we were working a lot and, and playing some original music and, and, you know, things were going really well uh, in terms of my, you know, what I was doing in Boston. And so Glenn was the U.S. distributor for Simmons Electronic Drums, which were brand new in the States. And he had come, we'd basically made a deal at the NAMM show that if he, if we bought a set, an SCS5, which, you know, had just come out, if we bought a set COD, that he would come to the store and do a demonstration. So we had the kit and, uh, and Glenn came in and, you know, he was, he was from England, but he'd been living in California for, I think a little while, a couple of years. And so he was kind of traveling all over the place and doing these demos at different music stores, but we were the only store in Boston that had them. So I should also say that the band, the cars had a studio right across the street from us <laughs> called Synchro Sound. And, uh, and they used to shop in there all the time. David used to come in, David Robinson and, and, you know, he didn't endorse any product, so he would come in in his tech, or he would buy his sticks and occasionally pick out a symbol and buy a symbol here and there, and um, you know, kind of a, that's how it was back then. You know, for yeah. the most part, yeah, back in the old days. So, <clears throat> anyway, Glenn comes in and we we hit it off right away, and we set up the kit upstairs in the keyboard department where they had some, you know, some good sound reinforcement to play them through and. Um, and, you know, I was interested in them. I thought they were pretty unique, but I thought to myself, I don't know. I just, boy, they feel funny when you hit them and they make these sounds that I, I don't know. Little did I know. But um, David Robinson came to the clinic. There were maybe 30 people in the room. And, you know, he's watching Glenn very intently as Glenn's demonstrating them. He had them sounding amazing. He had them sounding like rototoms and these big, beefy, you know, analog tom-tom sounds and you know, it's, it was that sound that you were hearing on the Duran Duran records at that time. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it was, but it was really just, I mean, I, I had heard them on records, but it was really just starting to happen. So anyway, um, we went finished. We went out and had a, had a 
a beer or something afterward and we hung out and, you know, really hit it off. And then he left <clears throat> and I, the next day, David Robinson and his drum tech came in and said, can we, you know, mess around with the kit for a while? I said, sure. So we had it set up in the drum department and, and, you know, I was trying to remember some of the things that Glenn had showed me and that I'd seen him do with it. And, we, you know, we were just experimenting with it. And after about an hour or so, they left. And uh, a little later, his tech came back and said, we're going to buy it. We can put it on our account. We'll take it. And I said, wow, okay. That was easy. <laughs> big sale for was, John. <laughs> yeah, big sale for me. I was thinking, you know, I'm going to have to explain to my boss that we bought this kit for whatever it was, 2500 bucks, which is a lot of money back then. And if it was sitting for a month, I know I'd, I'd probably get, you know, I'd never hear the end of it, but so he, they bought the kit and Glenn called me, I think later that day or the next day. And he said, I heard you sold the kit, you know, <laughs> to the cars. <laughs> and I thought they must've registered the warranty or something. Cause he, you know, was like on me to buy another one right away. Yeah. It's pretty funny, <clears throat> which we did do. And, and so we were the first store and we, we started selling them. We didn't sell them quite as fast, but but people would come in and, and, um, and people started to buy them. <clears throat> Sorry, my throat is getting really dry. And so that created this relationship with, uh, developed this relationship with Glenn over the next few years. And at a point um, in 1985, I was thinking I wanted to move to Los Angeles. My band, I was sort of done with the scene in Boston and looking to sort of, you know, move to brighter horizons, so to speak, musically. And, you know, knowing full well that moving out to L.A., that I wasn't going to be the next Vinnie Kaliuta, I wasn't going to be the next John Robinson and, or Jeff Picaro and, you know, get session work. But I just wanted to get out there and, and, uh, and try to meet people and play in a band. And just I was only 24 years old, so I was certainly young enough, I think, to, to give it a while. So I called Glenn and I told him I was thinking of moving out there. And he said, well, and, you know, and then I, I was looking for a job if he had something. And he said, basically, um, you know, if, if, uh, if you come out here, I'm sure I could find something for you. You know, you're, you're a good man and I know you're a hard worker and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, that's, that's great to know that. So I sort of filed it away. And a few months later, I really was pretty determined at that point to, to make the move. And I had made my mind up. And so I called Glenn again and, and he said, okay, all right you come out here, I'll, I'll have a job for you. Just call me when you get here and I'll, you know, I've, I'll have something like very definitive that I, he'd have something for me. So I, sure enough, I moved out there and I called him and went out and did a sort of informal interview with some of the other guys, the sort of managers of different departments and he hired me. And my first job there was a sort of mishmash of just, you know, answering uh, you know, consumer calls that had technical, I was, I, I should say that I had bought an SDS seven in the meantime and had been using it on gigs and was very familiar with the product. So, you know, they stuck me on a phone one day and to just answer consumer calls about, um, you know, problems that they were having or didn't know how to work this certain feature. And, uh, and then a, a couple of days later I was working as a sort of artist relations person, just dealing with people coming in and needing technical support or, Picking, you know, picking up a new pad or a new this, and so I first met Danny Serafin. In fact, was at Simmons, and I, in fact, I met within the first month or two. I met Danny. I met John Robinson. I met Jerry Brown. I met 
um, Myron Grombacher and Greg Bissonnette, who are two of my still to this day best friends. You know, I mean, all the way back then, it's. So for a young guy from from you know Massachusetts, you're you're walking in tall cotton, as we say down here in the South. I mean, you're meeting all these great guys, right? I mean, that's that's got to make you yeah. happy. It made me very happy. It was great. It was it was it was amazing. I mean, it was just. I, I remember thinking to myself, like everybody lives out here. Like all you know, all these drummers that I love. Like who who doesn't live out here? You know, Chad Wackerman would come in one day, and he, you know, the nicest guy. Um, you know, and it was just so I, I did that for a few weeks while I was there. And then eventually Glenn wanted me to move over to the sales department. He said, you know, this is really what you're best suited for. And, and, you know, uh, you'll make more money doing this. I'll, you know, give you a bump. And I thought, well, that's, that's great. That's kind of, you know, he spoke my language, so to speak. So I, <laughs> I worked there, <laughs> I worked there and, and as a, regional sales manager, which is basically a, there were three of us that handled it all by telephone, but I had the, I had the territory of Southern California. So I actually went out and visited stores kind of at least once a week, I'd get out and like to a guitar center or West LA music or a couple of, um, keyboard shops in Hollywood carried Simmons as well that, you know, you wouldn't expect to carry drum equipment, but they, they, they stocked some of the Simmons stuff. So I, you know, I, I would get out of the office here and there and, you know, and in that respect, I got to meet, you know, more people that I would later network with, uh, around Los Angeles. So, um, and I, I stayed there for a year and a few months and by the, by the, uh, summer of 1986, things had really started to slow down at Simmons and at the same time, Yamaha and Roland had introduced their electronic, their first versions of their electronic kits way back then. And, you know, they, they certainly had an advantage in terms of their, um, you know, what they had them in terms of marketing and, and financially. And, and I, I should even say technology. I mean, they, they had developed a, a better pad that, that sort of surpassed where Simmons was at that time anyway. So that was a, that was a tough one to overcome. But, but I think more than anything, they had the distribution. I mean, they had, the strength of, of all those Yamaha dealers basically saying, and I remember talking to like the guys at West LA saying, you know, for us to carry Yamaha DX sevens and all these other things, we have to stock these electronic drums. That's how they do it. And the same with Roland, it'd be like, well, you know, we, we have to take these drums because we're a Roland dealer and they, they won't let us cherry pick. And this, this is a, I'm sure, you know, it's a common thing that, that manufacturers do. And, um, so, you know, so that sort of ate into the whole Simmons thing. And, and it was, the, the trends were changing too. I mean, people were still buying electronic drums, but if you remember at that time, it was, the, the trend was going back to acoustic drums. I mean, bands like Motley Crue and, you know, all those MTV bands of that time were playing, you know, Pearl double bass drum sets. Right. Yeah. The, and, the ubiquitous Pearl export kit, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you could, you know, that translated pretty directly to, you know, a lot of people not wanting electronics anymore. It was like, ah, okay, I tried that. It was sort of a fad and now I want to, you know, play my acoustic kit. Right. So that, so anyway, at that time, um, I had during that time working at Simmons at a, Guitar Center opening or somewhere along the line, I had met Don Lombardi. 
um, who I'd, I think I've spoken to on the phone once or twice when I worked at the music store at Wurlitzer about a pedal or ordering something. But, you know, I met Don and he was this really nice guy. And, you know, at that time he just made DW chain pedals, and DW strap drive pedals, and they'd come out with a double pedal. Well, um, they had bought like the old Camco tool and die equipment. That's that, right. That's how they got started, I think. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly right. He had bought, he had bought the, the, uh, the tooling for all the Camco pedals and the Camco name was bought by, um, it was sold by, 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 uh, I'm trying to think of Tom Beckman, who was running Camco, then went to work for Roland. It was sold to Tama. They bought the name. Oh, really? I didn't know is, that. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. And they still do own it, believe it or not. Wow. Okay. They, there was a period of time in the late seventies, early eighties where Tama made a, uh, their own version of a Camco drum. You could probably find them on the internet and Elvin Jones played them for maybe five minutes in the, in the early 1980s. Okay. Yeah. The, the lugs were, they were sort of round, but not the same lug because DW now owned that, that design, <laughs> but they were like a, a roundish lug and the logo was a little bit different, but, but it was close enough to, you know, look like a Camco. And I think they were actually pretty good drums too. I mean, I think they were pretty good. Well, I mean, you know, the the vintage Camco stuff from the 60s is kind of the holy grail out there. I mean, you just don't see them, you know? Yeah. Um, And if you do, they're they're crazy money. Yeah, crazy 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 money. money. Yeah, for sure. So so you meet up with Don Lombardi, and so was he the ultimate connection back to the East Coast? Well, you know, so I I had met him... um, I'd met him along the way somewhere and I hadn't really thought much about it. And then, so fast forward, I don't know how many months later, um, I was married to my, um, first wife at the time and we were expecting my son. Um, I'm trying to think just a, you know, just a couple of months pregnant with my son. And, and I got a phone call one night from Don at my house and I, he must've got my number from someone. I, I don't even remember how he got it, but he just, He's hey, it's Don. How you doing? You know, if you've ever talked to Don, he's he's the best. You know, yeah, great guy, great guy. And he said, uh, you know, so we're we're looking to um, really get into the drum market, you know, in a serious way. And you know, we make some drums now. We get a few guys who play them: Jim Keltner, Chad Wackerman, a couple of guys. But we want to really, you know, we see a. I should say, he said, I see an opportunity in the market because at that time, this was 1986. You had you know, Rogers and Slingerland were both gone, basically. Gretsch was hanging on by its fingernails, as was Ludwig. And you really just had the three Japanese companies kind of running the show. You had Yamaha was very strong. Um, Pearl was coming on stronger. And Tama. Um, and, you know, he just felt there was an opportunity. Even even with Gretsch and Ludwig still in the pitch, picture, he felt, you know, if it's a good quality drum and... Um, made in the USA and, you know, done right, I think we could find our little niche. So he asked me if I'd be interested. He said, I'm looking for someone to be, you know, artist relations and sales or sales and artist relations. Is that something you maybe want to talk about? And I gave it some thought and I said, I agreed to come up and, and meet him after work one night up at the old shop in, in uh, Thousand Oaks area, which was um, Newbury Park, California at the time which was not that far from where Simmons was. So I just got in the car after work one night and went up there and I met with him. He showed me around the the shop and 
I actually saw a, buddy, a drum kit they made for Buddy Ritz. It was an exact Buddy model in DW. Wow. White Marine Pearl. Yeah, and uh, because, you know, I later learned the whole Freddie Gruber connection, and um, Don studied with Freddie. Freddie was an early sort of investor in the company. Um, he was very close with Buddy, so they made this connection, but Buddy hated the lugs. Just, <laughs> too big there's a story yeah he just did not and that's a, that's a i've heard people talk about that and wonder if it's a if that's just some crazy myth but it's i mean i heard it right from don and don just sort of laughed about it he said yeah he just he said they look like clocks he just hates the lugs <laughs> so anyway <laughs> i'm sidetracked here yeah, but, god, um, god bless you buddy rich right <laughs> yeah i know i know man so you know i liked what i saw and i liked don and and uh we got to talking and we sort of figured out the finances of it all. And, and I decided to take the job. And, and so the hardest thing then was to tell, <clears throat> excuse me, tell Glenn that I was going to leave, but he couldn't have been nicer about it. And he understood. He said, Hey, I get it. It's an opportunity and you're expecting a child and it's more money. So, you know, you know, he, he, he was, it made me feel so much better. You know, if he had, hadn't been so good about it, I would have felt terrible and I might not have even left. I mean, I, I, I felt a real sense of loyalty to him for giving me that opportunity when I got out there. So, so I went to work for DW and, and, uh, that was in the fall of 86 and we launched DW drums that January at the NAMM show of 87. And it was, it was literally Don, John Good and myself, uh, in the booth. It was a tiny little booth and we had one drum set that we, we got there, you know, like <laughs> right in the nick of time. I think, I think John was finishing it up the day we were setting up and like rushed it down there. And <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how yeah. it was in those days, you know, and, um, you know, prototypes of this and the, you know, prototype of this pedal and the, this, the new linkage for the double pedal, it's not quite done, but we can show people. And, um, but it was, it, you know, and the drums were a really hard sell. They were, you know, people were not anxious for another drum company, understandably. Um, they were, you know, when I say people, dealers were selling plenty of, of, you know, Pearl sets and Yamaha and Thomas sets and maybe the occasional Ludwig or, or Gretsch. But, um, you know, I, I, people that I'd known for some time now, dealers that were friends, were kind of pushing back saying, oh, come on, really? You want me to? And it's, and it's on top of that, it was not an inexpensive set. It was priced comparable to Gretsch, which was, yeah, they were, they were very I expensive. Very. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they absolutely were. I mean, they were all hand lacquered finishes. They were, um, you know, they were definitely top of the line and there were some, you know, there were some kind of warts in the, in the early days. There were some time, you know, some cases where maybe some of the finishes went a little funky by the time they got to the dealer. So you had to sort that out, but it started to happen and we started to sign guys, one being like, I mentioned Danny Serif and he came up one day and, and, uh, was interested in, in checking the drums out. I think it was because he, he wanted to go back to playing a maple shell, which he had played, having played Slingerland, <clears throat> excuse me, Slingerland all those years. Sorry about my dry throat. And, uh, he, you know, he just, he loved the setup. He loved all of us at the shop. He loved that it. it was almost in his backyard. So Danny came on board and we got some rock drummers like, Ricky Rocket and um, Tommy Lee came a little bit after that and things were starting to happen, you know? Yeah. Um, 
so that, you know, that got into the late eighties and, um, I'll, I'll, I'll keep moving ahead here by 1988, a year after my son was born, he was born in May of 87. We were kind of flying back and forth all the time to see family for one thing or another. And, um, and, you know, missing home. And it was, it was hard to think about my son, like growing up 3000 miles away from his grandparents and his family. And so I, I kind of, in my mind anyway, made this decision of, of moving back, uh, when I wasn't sure, but, but ultimately wanting to move back to Boston. And if there's a way to do it with DW, then even better. But if not, I'll, I'll just figure it out. So eventually I talked to Don about it and I, and he was great about it. I, I said, you know, I could be your East coast. Things are going, you know, well enough now that I could, I could work out of my house. I could be your East coast artist relations sales guy. And I could, you know, actually physically call on Manny's and Sam Ash and all those stores in New York, as well as Boston and New England. And so we, we put together a plan and we, a few months later, I made the move back east and was Don's East Coast guy. And so that would have been the end of 1988, kind of coming into the end of that year. And, uh, and it was going well and things were starting to happen. I mean, we were selling drums, we were selling snare drums. Of course, the hardware was, we couldn't keep it in stock. It was always back ordered. I mean, Everybody, everybody on earth endorsed DW hardware at that time. I think, you know, pedals and hardware, right? I mean, everybody, absolutely everybody. And, and the dealers, you know, the music stores couldn't get enough of it. I mean, people like Sam Ash would order, you know, 48 turbo pedals at a time or, (laughs) you know, I mean, you know, or, or as many as they could get their hands on. If, if, if I said, yeah, we've just, you know, we've, we've just done a run and I can get you, 50 or 60, I'll take them all, you know, <laughs> that's a good there problem to have. <laughs> it a, yeah. So, and I, I came from being a salaried employee to a commission, you know, a salary with a, a commission on top of that, a uh, smaller salary, obviously. But, um, so there was definitely motivation for me to get out there and really, you know, push and sell it. And, uh, so things were going well. And, and it was January of 89. I, came back out to California for the NAMM show. Don brought me out for the winter NAMM show. And I happened to go by the Zildjian booth and I knew some of the folks there, Lenny DiMuzio and I'd met Armin a couple of times and some other folks. And, uh, this guy named Colin Schofield, who I knew, um, from, he worked out of the factory in Boston, out of the office here. And I'd seen him around town a few times and he said, yeah, I heard you're you know, you're back in Boston now. And I said, yeah, it's going well. And DW's happening and all that. And he, he said, well, you know, we, we've actually, we're looking at expanding and your name came up and, you know, would you be interested in talking to us? Do you have a resume with you? And I said, I do have a resume with me. So I, I gave that to him and, and he said, well, I'm going to give you a call and, and, uh, you know, if you'd want to come down and talk to us. And I said, well, what's it about? He said, well, I'd rather save that for when you come down. I said, okay. All right. So I, I don't know, a couple of weeks later, maybe a week later, I don't know. I got a call from Colin and he said, so when can you come down? Can you come down this week? Um, which I did. And the funny thing is I grew up, I don't know, 25 or 30 miles North of the Zildjian factory and, and never, never visited it. <laughs> yeah. It was right in your backyard. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, not that it's open to the world, but I'd worked at that at E. Wurlitzer, and I, you know, Lenny used to say, "Yeah, if you want to come down, and you know, if you want to pick these symbols up that you're ordering, if you, you know, we'll take you to lunch." And I just, I just never made the effort, I guess. But, but it's just kind of funny. So I, I go in and and I see the place for the first time, and I meet with Colin, and he tells me that, okay, so here's the deal. Lenny uh, Demuzio, who I'm sure you know who Lenny is rest his soul. Um, Lenny had been artist relations for Zildjian from like 1960 or 61 and, and various other duties as well. But he was the guy, you know, that, that really the start of the whole program back in yeah. the early 1960s, he was moving over to education. They wanted to focus more on education. So they needed someone to kind of take that spot to be the day-to-day artist relations manager. And my name had been tossed in the hat and they said, you know, we're looking at some other candidates, which now looking back, I think they're pulling my leg a little bit on that, but that's okay. That's Yeah, that was, the, that was the salary negotiation part of the day. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, so we, we took a tour and I, you know, I was very um, impressed with what I saw and, I, and I, the people that I met that day and the people that I already knew were there. And so I liked it, you know, and, and, um, I just, you know, I was very honest and I said, well, you know, it's different from what I'm doing. I mean, I've, I've done artist relations and I, and I do some of it at DW, but you know, what really pays my bills is, is I'm selling drums and I'm, you know, it's the drums are really starting to happen now. And, um, you know, I, I got another kid on the way, which, which we did. We found out we were expecting, uh, my daughter who arrived in September of 89. So anyway, it was, um, you know, it was a lot to think about. And they said, Colin basically said to me, well, think about it. And, and, uh, can you come back and talk and meet with Armin Zildjian and interview with him? And I mean, I, I was very honest. I said, I'm, I'm definitely interested. I'm not saying I'm not, I just need to really think this through. And I mean, it's, it's on the one hand, it's the security of a company like Zildjian. And then on the other hand, it's, I need to be realistic about how much I'm going to make doing whatever I do. So, um, and the only person I told about this at that time, actually, there's more to it. I'll get to it in one second. Um, so I, you know, I, I guess what happened in the meantime was I got a phone call from, uh, I'm trying to give his name, Bob Cotton, a man by the name of Bob Cotton. I can tell this story now. I'm past <laughs> the statute of limitations. Um, he, he was the sales manager for HSS, which was the distributor for Sonar, Sabian, and uh, Honer. Okay. Keyboards and, and um, so they were, yeah, they were HSS, Honer, Sonar, Sabian. So they were the Sabian distributor for the U.S. And he had got my name from someone, one of the dealers had recommended me for uh, a rep position to sell Sabian in New England. So, and this is right on the heels of going to Zildjian. I don't know, it was a few days or a week after I'd been down for the first interview. So he said, well, look, we're, we're looking to fill a spot and your name's been thrown in the hat and I'm going to be coming up from Virginia to, to interview people. Uh, would you be available in a couple of weeks? And I said, uh, yeah, I think I could. And, and, and I said, uh, he said, so what do you, what do you do right now? And I told him, and, he, and he, I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm repping DW. That's where I'm making most of my money. And he said, yeah, well, you, if we hired you, you know, you'd have to resign the DW line because we have Sonar. And I said, well, geez, I said, I, you know, 
So I've, I've worked for the company from the beginning. I've really invested a lot of my kind of blood, sweat, and tears into it. I'd, I'd hate to just give it up. And he said, well, you know, listen, and I, if Bob hears this, I, I know he'll take this in the right spirit because he was, he was pretty kind of pushy about it in, in his own way, saying, oh, you'll, you'll be making enough money with Sabian that in Sonar you won't even care about DW, like, you know, meaning, you know, you're, you're getting hung up on that. Don't worry about it. Right. And it kind of left me feeling like, oh, geez. So then I, I, I called the one person that I think I might have told my dad, but in the industry that I felt I could confide in and have it not go anywhere, and that was Joe McSweeney, who was the owner of Eames Drums at the time. And uh, I think I actually stopped in to have lunch with him one day, and he, he was just laughing. He said, if you've ever spoken to Joe, he has this really dry uh, way about him. He said, well, you know, John, that's what we call a good problem. <laughs> and uh, it was just the way he said it. I said, yeah, I know, but it's, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, you know, I, you'll figure it out. You know, I go down and, and if Zildjian isn't willing to make it right for you, you, you know, you, there's, there's no downside to this, which is, I mean, I knew that already, but there was no, I could, I could just decline both offers and, and keep selling DW, which had I done that three years later when, you know, the whole grunge thing exploded, I'd have really made a lot of money, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, I went back to Zildjian. I met with, with Armin, you know, the next time and I'm sitting in his office and Lenny Demuzio's there who I knew fairly well at the time. And, and, uh, Armin's daughter, Craigie, who of course later would become my boss. And so Armin's we're chatting and we're having this really nice conversation. And he's just the most charming, incredibly nice, sweetest human there ever was. And, and he's saying, so yeah, you know, you know, uh, you know, Peter Erskine. I said, yeah, I, I do. I know Peter. I've, I've met him. I, I don't know him well, but I know him pretty well. You know, Steve Gatt. Yeah, I've met Steve. And, and, you know, and then Lenny's kind of nodding his head, kind of, you know, giving me the, the thumbs up. And, and then Craigie, Armin's daughter, says, I, I have a question. And she's like, had circled all these, made all these notes on my resume. She said, it looks like you've moved around quite a bit. You were, you were living here and then you moved out to California and you're working for one company, then you work for another company, and, and now you're back here. And, you know, I, we, we don't want to hire someone and then have them leave and just keep moving around or something like that, which I said, that's a, that's a, a, that's a very fair um, question to ask. And I said, and the reason is I moved out there to be a drummer and to pursue music and then, you know, had a child and moved back to the East Coast to, uh, to be with our family and I, you know, I, I don't ever foresee ever moving away because this is where my family is. I mean, it was a pretty simple, but you know, and then she ha asked me a couple other questions and then Armin said, Greggy, for crying out loud, I like this guy. Just hire him and give him whatever he wants. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> oh man. And I just sort of put my head down going, Oh boy, I hope I didn't just, you know, <laughs> cause some family strife, but well, so, so, you know, the, so you, you go to work at Zildjian and, you know, I mean, it, it, here's one thing that I want to interject into your story. I can't tell you how many records I have in my collection. And I'm the guy that opens up the liner notes and reads every word. Right. I'm, I'm that guy, because if I like the record enough to buy it, I want to know where it was recorded 
who was the engineer, you know, all those things. I'm, I'm, I'm a music geek and I can't, I can't tell you how many times I saw your name and thanks to John to Christopher Zildjian symbols, just every record from that era, from the time you started at Zildjian, you know, up through the, the 2000s, you know, your name is inside how many, you know, records, you know, uh, on the jacket of the record or or CD or whatever the case may be. But, you know, clearly you were working with tons and tons of people at Zildjian. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, and, you know, it was a busy time. Yeah. And we talked a little bit offline about this, you know, before we started the interview, but you know, in your day-to-day interactions at Zildjian, I'm sure, you know, you're, you're talking to, to Peter Erskine, Steve Gadd, you know, and, and countless others. At what point do you get over that aspect of it to go, oh my God, Steve Gadd just called me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I do. And, and for, some, for some of the guys, some of the artists, uh, you know, it, it took longer than others, I guess you could say. Um, you know, it, it, it did, I won't say it became matter of fact, but I realized that it was what the job was. So I, you know, and I, and I will say this too, Jamie, you know, I started there in May of 1989 and shortly thereafter, by like a month later, June, the concert season just, you know, just, um, took over my, my life basically. And I would be down at this, this venue that was about, I don't know, 40 minutes away. There's a shed called, it was then called great woods, but, um, and I would be down there almost every night, yeah literally like to the point where, which was and on the one hand, all of the security guys knew me. And I, even if I got the wrong kind of pass, like I'd show up to bring some symbols to somebody and then they would have given me an after show pass. And so you learn quickly to how to, you know, sort of, um, act on your feet in those situations and think on your feet, I should say. And, um, you know, and, and, and one of the guys would say, I, yeah, don't worry. I'll, I'll, he's okay. Let him go. And he's, he's resilient. He's bringing some stuff and he can't wait till after the show to get that stuff to him. And, um, so things like that. But I was, I guess what I'm getting at is it, it became not routine, but so much of the sort of, uh, glamor, if you know what I mean, yeah. it, it wore off, which was a good thing. I mean, it really was a job. And, and, you know, I'd see old friends that I hadn't seen in a while. And I'd say, I heard you got this job where you're meeting all these people. That must be unbelievable. I go, yeah, it's, it's great. But you know, I get home at midnight and I'm back in the <laughs> office early the next morning and I do the same thing again. And sometimes I have to go on a Saturday and, or a Sunday because that's when, you know, Tony Williams is coming to town and I, I got to see Tony. So, um, so, you know, there's, you know, there's that side of it. And I don't, I certainly don't regret that, that side of it. But, um, so my, my point being that, that for the most part, that, that sort of wore off, but I will say Steve Gadd, for example, when I really started to get to know Steve, he was, he would, and he still does this now, but, um, he would call my home number I'd given him my number somewhere along the line and he would call at like 10 o'clock at night um, from wherever he was. And he'd go, Hey man, Hey, it's Steve. <laughs> and he'd want to go, Hey, listen, um, you guys, you, you guys still make 15 inch high hats. I saw somebody, you know, and it would be this conversation about, but he'd also want to know like, um, 
you know, so you live near the water, huh? That must be nice. Wow. Are you like right on the beach? And I said, well, no, no, about a mile from the beach, but we overlook a, you know, a tidal river. It's, you know, a water view. Oh man, that, that must be great. You know, so it was like, and I'd yeah. be, I'd be thinking, well, I'm not going to hurry him off the phone. It's Steve Gadd. You know, <laughs> what do I have to do tonight? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you and know, my I- wife, I've said to folks, and not to not to interrupt, but you know, I've said to no, folks okay. that when you're when you're an artist with a company like a Zildjian or, or Pearl or whomever it may be, yeah, you love the gear, but it really is, at least for me anyway, as a drummer, it's it's the relationships that I've built, you know, with with the folks at the company, and I think a lot of that gets lost, but. You know, I I feel certain in saying, you know, any of the guys that I deal with on a day to day basis at any of my companies, they know my daughter's name. They know where she's going to Mm -hmm. high school, you know, and that that can't be replicated. I don't think if it's just purely a transactional business, you know, so so talk a little bit about that relationship building that you do or or did as as an artist relation rep. Well, I I think. That's a really good question, and that and that you're right. That's it. It it is a big part of it. it at least it used to be. And I'm not, I'm not being critical in saying that people that do that job don't have personal relationships. I I think they do in in most cases, but it has become a little bit more transactional and a little bit more mechanical. And I that was sort of contributed to to my mindset when I decided to to move on. It just it was becoming a little bit more. Um, sort of business and corporate, but, uh, but I, I think any person who does that job, it has to come naturally to them to, to want to have those kind of skills. Do you know what I mean? I think, and I think most people have that skill of, 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 you know, engaging with people and, and having those kind of skills. But I, I also think it, it comes down to the, the people that I was interacting with too. I mean, there were, there were some people that, um, it was just a very natural, immediate connection that I made. Maybe the first time I met someone, like Greg Bissonette is a great example of, of um, I mean, the first time I met him, he, he, it was before he had the gig with David Lee Ross. He was, he'd come in to Simmons as a friend of Myron Grombacher, who was, the, you know, the rock star of the two at that time. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I meet this guy and he's the nicest guy. And, Myron says to me, you should hear this guy play. And you want to be this guy. So he's a mother, you know, he's a bad mother or something, you know? And, and, uh, and, and we start talking about the Beatles and, and Ringo and, and we just start immediately like, Greg's like, you, you're a Ringo fan too. Oh man. Oh, you know, and I love it. You know, and we just connected like that. And I should mention too, like one of my oldest friends, um, Rick Murata is another one who I met way, way back um, when I was, I guess I was at, I think it might have even been when I was at Simmons, but briefly, but then again at DW. And I remember being afraid to approach him, and just as an example, because he was this larger than life guy that I'd, like you said, as far as reading liner notes, like his name was on all these records that I loved. And, and, uh, and I'd never heard anything negative about him. I just thought, well, he's, you know, how am I going to approach this guy? I'm going to just go up and say hello to him. And he was like, so nice. And he, he, he doesn't really remember it. He's, he, he said to me, like, when did we meet? Was it, 
Did we meet at something at Zildjian? I said, well, we met years before that. And, uh, and he's one of the funniest guys on the planet, Rick. So he, he, you know, he made a joke about, well, I obviously you didn't make an impression on me because I don't remember meeting you or something. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that sounds like but, Rick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I, I remember like going out to LA at some point must've been in the early nineties. Um, I used to go out there all the time, even though I was, you know, when I was living in Boston, I'd go out there when I was at Zildjian every month, it seemed, or every six weeks or so for one thing or another. And there was an office out there that I'd work out of, but, and having dinner with Rick and some other guys. And, and he, and I remember him saying like, well, man, listen, when you come out here, you should call me and we'll, we'll hang out. We'll go do this. We'll do that. And, and he was just so easy to hang out with. There was no, um, it just, like most of the guys, there was, there was nothing, um, uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, but there wasn't any sort of ego or anything like that. It's just like a regular guy. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I self-proclaimed music geek, right? I love everything about drumming and, you know, I, I'm certainly no, you know, big rock star or anything like that. But, you know, when I started this show, I knew that I wanted to use what few industry connections I had, you know, to get guests on the show. And, you know, I got to be honest with you, when, when I landed the, the Pete Erskine interview, I was nervous as a cat, you know, and you, you get Peter Erskine on the phone and he's just a guy that really wants to talk about drumming. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. We're, we're all just people. And I, I think, you know, I, I mean, I have some friends that are like, oh my God, you had Rod Morgenstein on your show. What was that like? And I'm like, well, it was like, talking to a really good drummer that's really smart and wants to teach other drummers, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. There, there's, there's no rock star stuff with it, but I, I say all that to kind of transition a, a little bit, you know, you shared with me a couple of weeks back, a great interview that you had done with Stan Lynch, of course, you know, famously from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, you've gotten to yeah. know these guys, but you've used your talents in other ways over the years as well. You've worked for a couple of different drum magazines doing interviews and things, um, you know, and that is based upon relationships, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thank you for mentioning Stan and I'm glad you enjoyed the, the interview I did. And it was excellent. Um, he's another guy yeah, that, that I met, um, you know, way back when. And I was a, I was a huge fan, like, you know, growing up in the late seventies and, and throughout the eighties. And I met him when I started, I guess it was when I started at Zildjian. It might've been when I was leaving DW or something. And, and, uh, and yeah, just a salt of the earth guy, kind of guy. I mean, just like down to earth, you know, I'll get a phone call from him out of the blue and email and he's living down in Florida now. And, and, uh, and he just, he just wants to stay connected. I love that about him. You know, that he'll just go, Hey man, I was thinking about you and, and, uh, hit me back sometime, you know, or something. And, um, well, yeah, he's, I, he's one of the most criminally underrated drummers of all time, in my opinion. I mean, what he did with that band is, um, I, you know, I, I don't know how many of my listeners have sat down and tried to play a set of Tom Petty's music, but to get those feels perfect is next to impossible. It really is. I, I agree. Yeah. You know, I mean, he it is it, for me, at least. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it is for me, too. I mean, it's just he has something that can't be taught. 
and it, you know, I don't know what it is, but you know, call it the special sauce, but um, just criminally underrated uh, in terms of drummers. But one other thing that I want to touch on, and I want to be respectful of your time. I don't, I don't want to take up your whole day, but you know, on my Mount Rushmore of drummers, um, I would, you know, if I had to pick four, you know, I would absolutely have Charlie Watts up there. And, you know, you and I have talked about this before. You have gotten to know Charlie over the years. And, you know, Charlie is, uh, you know, kind of famously a, a non-endorser of, <laughs> of products, for, for lack of a yeah. better term. You know, I mean, he's still using... 60s UFIP symbols, for example, you know, that, that you just can't find anymore. But tell us a good Charlie Watts story, if you would. Sure. Yeah. And, and I should say, and I, I, I know I skipped over this, but I was so, uh, I, I was being, I was trying to get my story of like how I started playing through and I, and I skipped over a lot of important parts or what I think to be important parts, which one being Charlie, um, when I, when I really got serious about, serious about playing in the summer of 1972, Exile on Main Street had just come out. The greatest and album just, of all time, in my opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm high-fiving you right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'll take that over <laughs> anything, any day. Absolutely. And my sister, who's five years older than me, um, was really into the Stones, and she's who, the person who got me into them. So she'd be listening to that record, and I would just, it would just sort of, by osmosis, you know, make its way into my, into my, you know, my brain and my, my system. And, and I started listening to that record over and over and like playing along to it. And so that, that was really a huge influence on my, on my drumming, you know, his, and then all the other records around that, that I then got hip to like sticky fingers and, and older records. And then later the stuff they did, but that one record, I, I would just, you know, play it over and over again um, and just playing along to it. So, Anyway, Charlie had this special place in my heart, and um, you know, I, I I didn't think I'd ever really have a chance to meet him because I knew enough about him exactly what you said, Jamie, that he doesn't endorse products. He doesn't even really technically endorse Scratch, though he he sort of now I, I think he he likes the idea of of playing. I mean, he he loves playing Gretsch drums to the point of of him always wanted to have that logo on there. I mean, yeah. so, so that's, I think a cool thing. Like he, and he associates that with his heroes and you know, all his, all his jazz heroes. And he feels like, well, they all had a Gretsch logo on their bass drum. And I'm, I mean, he hasn't told me this, but I know that's where that comes from. Um, and he, and he loves that part of it, but, but he does like to just play whatever he wants to play, which yeah. would be a mixture of UFIP symbols and some Zildjian's and, for a long time, Peisty symbols. And, and it took me a while to realize that because I kind of assumed as a kid, he was playing a Zildjian's on all those records. And uh, the first time 30 years ago, in fact, in 1989, they were playing at um, what, what's now Gillette stadium in Foxborough mass where the new England Patriots play, but it was the big stadium and they were living color was opening and Will and I had become good friends, Will Calhoun. And I don't even was Zildjian if, six months or so at that point. But uh, Will got me into the show and I got up on stage before Charlie got there and I got up behind his drums. They were set up. And in fact, one of the guys that was working for the Stones at that time had worked for the Cars, a guy named Andy Topeka, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. But 
he recognized me. He said, hey, John, and I told him I was working for Zildjian. And, you know, just anyway, it sort of gave me the, the sort of green light to kind of go up on his riser and sort of check it out. And I looked, I'm, I was, you know, my, my goal being, I want to see what the heck these symbols are after all these years of trying to figure it out. And I realized, okay, he's playing some old new beats, look like 60s, you know, certainly old new beats. Um, the obvious UFIP China above his small tom, another UFIP China above his floor tom with rivets, the flat ride, which I, I couldn't make out really anything. And the 16 inch crash that you heard on all those records yeah. was a Peisty, yeah, a Peisty 602. And, I, and you, if you looked at it, I could send you a picture of it. If you looked at it, you'd swear it was an A Zildjian. As you know, the old 602s <laughs> right. had that, that look to them, the, the lathing and, and the shape. Um, but it had a, you know, they had a unique, I shouldn't say that the shape was a little bit different from a Zildjian, but that kind of blew my mind. I went, oh my gosh, this is a Peisty 602. Um, <laughs> wow. I was kind of a little bit heartbroken, you know, but I didn't get to meet Charlie that time. And then they came back again in 1994 and Lenny Kravitz was opening that year and Cindy Blackman was my good friend. And, um, and she said to me, I told Charlie you were coming and he, he said, so he'd like to meet you. And I said, Oh man, that's going to be great. But it just didn't happen. It was typical chaos before a show. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably easier to see the Pope and people have asked me, uh, you know, I'm going to go see the stones in, in Miami. Could you, is it possible for you to get me a pass? To, and I'm like, it would be easier to meet the Pope. Than, I can than get you back. into the Oval Office easier than I can yeah. get you into Charlie's dressing room. <laughs> and, you know, and people, when you explain it, they do understand. Like, you know, you've got to realize it's, that these guys are not, they're not entertaining people <laughs> backstage. They're just, they're in their dressing room getting, you know, you and I know all that stuff. So, yeah. And I, I don't mean to digress. So anyway, it was finally 1997. And I was just talking to Kenny Aronoff about this recently when they were recording, um, I think it was um, Bridges to Babylon, maybe? Yeah, I think Whatever that's right. Record, yeah. 1997, yeah. They were recording at Ocean Way in, uh, in Los Angeles, and Kenny Aronoff had been invited to play percussion. And I got a call from him one day, and he was like beside himself. He'd been up all night recording with them and said, it was me and Keltner, and then we were doing some stuff with Charlie and blah, blah, blah. They're at, you know, they're at Ocean Way. And I knew that Charlie had a drum tech named Chooch McGee. So I left a message at Ocean Way for Chooch. I told him who I was and, you know, Zildjian. And I got a phone call back from Chooch, like later that day or the next day. And I just said, I'm, I, look, I'm not, I'm not asking for anything or asking Charlie to do anything, but I'd love to send him some old vintage A Zildjian symbols that we recently uncovered in our, in our vault. I said, these were made in the 40s. They're they don't even have stamps on them. And this is true. I'd given some to Ringo a couple of years before. And I said, because these are going to get locked up. And I want to, I want to get some to Charlie before I, I can't have access to them. And he said, well, let me talk to Charlie. He said, can you do me a favor and write all this down in a letter and send it to my hotel? And then I'll <laughs> give it to Charlie. Yeah. So I did. I wrote it all down in a letter and I, you know, addressed to Charlie. And then I, I, um, I FedExed it so they would have got it the next day. And then I left on a clinic tour with Dennis Chambers for like two weeks. And I called in one day, maybe a few days into my trip, checking my voicemail. And there was a message from Charlie himself saying, hello, I got your letter. 
I'd love to check out these old symbols. It was just, I still have the recording, you know, and, <clears throat> and um, trying to get this in because I know we're getting tight on time, but uh, the long and short of it is I sent him the symbols. He asked for a, a specially made um, a Zildjian swish to be laid down really thin with rivets, which we did. And uh, a few months after that, they, while they were in New York, I met him for the first time. And I will say that we, I, I, it was, for me, um, I had to pinch myself that it was so genuinely um, comfortable. Do you know what I mean? He, he yeah. was so nice. Yeah. And um, I wasn't sure what, I thought it was just going to be a handshake. That's it. Nice to meet you. That's the end of it. And he said to me, uh, are you coming to the Boston show? You know, in a couple of days, I said, yes, I, ha I have tickets to both shows. I'll be at both shows. He said, well, I'll see you there. And I said, great. Okay. And, uh, you know, his tech tutor had got me in there and we had hit it off and become friends. And I said, Charlie, a friend of mine named Brian Blade is playing this weekend at uh, jazz club in Boston on Sunday night. Um, assuming you guys are in town on Sunday, it's the night before the first show. Uh, if you'd like to go, it's with a, a tenor player named Joshua Redman and a great bass player named Christian McBride. And, and he said, um, can I let you know? And I said, sure, absolutely. You can let me know. So this was like on a, I think I'd seen him on a Thursday in New York, went home over the weekend. I got a call from Chooch on Saturday saying, Charlie and I would like to come if it's still possible tomorrow night, meaning Sunday night. So I, call, I called the manager at the club and told him I might need two more tickets. It was sold out. I told him, you know, it was for Charlie. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll make it work. And uh, sure enough, they showed up and the manager brought us in through the back door, like got us to our seats. And, and we sat there and watched Brian. And I told Brian that Charlie was coming. And, and we really like that. That was like the, the beginning of this friendship 22 years ago. I mean, it was, you know, he was, um, he's just such a great down to earth guy. I can't even, I, I just spoke with him last week, unfortunately to give him the news about ginger that, um, it was before ginger passed away, but I said, I, I don't know if you've heard about ginger. He said, no, what's, what's going on? And I said, well, he's not doing well and he doesn't have much time. It's they've moved him to hospice. And, and he said, you know, can you, do you have a number? And I said, yeah, here's a number for his daughter. And so I think Charlie called right away and, got to say goodbye to ginger which was really nice oh that's a, that's a great story right there well two yeah. th two observations that, that i want to make here number one brian blade is incredible but if i'm brian uh, blade yeah. i hate john de christopher for the rest of his life for bringing charlie <laughs> watts to one of my gigs <laughs> no pressure uh, at all right no pressure um all joking aside you know charlie doesn't do a lot of press he doesn't do a lot of interviews the few that he ever has done you can tell he's really uncomfortable having the spotlight in his face he just he yeah. he's not wired that way but you know the the thing about charlie is again he has that something that can't be taught it is just this inherent feel and can you imagine any other drummer ever playing with the Rolling Stones? It, it just, no. it wouldn't be good, in my opinion. I don't care who you get in there. Charlie brings Charlie to that band and it makes it what it is. And I, it's just amazing. 
you know, I, I'm just proud that I'm friends with a guy that's friends with Charlie Watts. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, that's enough for me. Um, but well, it, you, I, it's just yeah, amazing. I, I was just going to say, and I, and I don't want to take up too much more time, but one of the, one of the, I mean, there, I, I have many, many, many stories of Charlie. And I guess I, I probably should have cut out a lot of the other, you know, uh, less interesting things about me and just talk more about Charlie, but no, I mean, no, getting, not at all getting close on time here. But, but when I, when I left Zildjian at the end of 2012, I was, they, it was when the stones had, had, um, announced their 50 and counting tour, whatever it was called their 50th anniversary tour. And they did a couple of just one off shows to start it. One, they did a show in, in uh, New Jersey in December of 2012. So I went down to that show and, um, and the, the news of me leaving had gotten out and I bumped into Max Weinberg in, uh, in the hallway on my way to catering just to get something to eat. And, and I'd become very close with Max over the years. And I actually, you know, Max is another one of those guys that wasn't endorsing any products. And I, I reached out to him when he first got the job with Conan O'Brien and, and he was a little standoffish. I mean, he was a little kind of, um, you know, I, not suspicious, but I, I, you know, he, he, I think he didn't want to be taken advantage of, if that makes sense. Sure. And, and he, you know, him and the band had been, I think they felt sort of burned a little bit when Bruce fired the band in the, in the early nineties. So anyway, but we developed a friendship. I'd go to New York regularly and visit him at the show. And I was sending him different things to try. And we, so we had a good friendship. So I bumped into Max and his wife and he was really, really nice. And he said, I'm really sorry you're going. You've been so good to me. And his son, Jay, who I'd signed up, is a really good drummer. And and he said, you know, stay in touch. Call me anytime. If you ever want to come to a show, to a Bruce show, any kind of show, just you're always welcome. And, and I've taken him up on that offer. So then I went and had something to eat. I, I go back to where the dressing rooms are, and there's Charlie and Max standing out in front. And Charlie goes, there you are. Where have you been? We were talking about you. <laughs> he said, what's this about you retiring? You can't retire. And, and, and he said. Uh, this said, coming from Charlie Watts, played in the same yeah. band for 50 years. <laughs> I know. And I'm, I'm cracking up because he said, how can you retire when I'm still doing this? And he like puts his hands up like I'm, I'm still having to do this or something. And, and then you know, I, I sort of pulled him aside and we had like a, a more of a private conversation. I said, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same for me there. And I, and I'm just thinking it's time to maybe just move on before, um, you know, I, I kind of want to leave on a high note, so to speak. And, and he said, I, I understand. He said, I do. I understand. And he said, and you know, you have my numbers and, and same thing, you know, call me, stay in touch. You're always welcome to a show. And, and, uh, and I've, you know, since leaving Zildjian in 2013, I've, I've seen them every time they've come through. Um, as recently as this past summer when they played in the Boston area. And it was just really great. I mean, he, he, he makes, I mean, I, I go into his dressing room and I was actually with some of the Zildjian people were there that night. And so he had his tech bring me in first. And I, I, I'm just saying this, but this is the kind of guy Charlie is because he respects the friendship and the relationship. He, he did want to say hello to the Zildjian people, but you know, and that was maybe a little bit more obligatory because he doesn't really know those folks. And, but you know, they've been nice to him. They've given him a couple of things. And, um, so I go in and I spend about a half hour or so in his dressing room or 45 minutes. And, and, uh, Don, his tech came in and said, 
uh, Charlie, you know, you want to say hi to the Zildjian folks before it's too late? He said, oh, yeah, who's there? Who is it? And he said, oh, well, just have them come in. So they came in, and he said hello for about five minutes, and some of them took their pictures, and then they were leaving, and I started to follow them. And he said, where are you going? And I said, well, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with you. I don't want to – well, I've got nothing to do. If you've got somewhere to go, that's fine, but I don't – don't feel like you have to go. I'm not going anywhere. And so I, I sat with him for like another half hour and we were looking at pictures of our, uh, I was showing him pictures of my vintage drums and, 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 uh, I just bought this Gretsch, um, gold plated snare drum. I don't know if you'd seen that on the forum, but I have. Um, he would, yeah. it's, it's a beauty. And I, I had a picture of it and he's using one on the B stage on this tour. And that's pretty beat up. And I, I showed him the picture of mine and said, he said, wow, that's like in really good shape. That looks a lot better than mine. And, uh, you know, he was, it's just funny. We were just sitting there geeking out about drums. And then finally somebody said, you know, 15 minutes. And uh, I said, well, Charlie, I should let you go. I should, you know, I should get moving. And so I, you know, made my way out there. But it was, I had gone through a lot to get there that day. I had to, I'd taken a long trip from Martha's Vineyard on the ferry, driven up in the traffic and, and uh, it was well worth it. If, well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's times a hundred. Yeah, to hang out with Charlie. Now, you know, and I don't want to put too fine a point on this, and I do want to be respectful of your time. But you know, you've said retire a couple of times, and and I want you, you can share whatever you'd like, but you're not retired. It's not like you go fishing every day. You you <laughs> you're still. Uh, you're still involved in the drumming community. Uh, wh- what would you like to share with our listeners about what you're up to these days? Well, without, I promise without making it too long a story, when I, about five years ago, I'd already, um, this was 2014. I'd been retired in quotations for at that point, about a year, but I was still in pretty regular contact with guys like Steve and, and certainly Rick Murata, who I would see every summer on Martha's Vineyard and, and Danny and, you know, everybody. So, um, and Peter and Steve had some issues, um, that he was dealing with that, you know, sort of industry business stuff that, but I used to take care of for him. So he called me one day, my wife and I were actually on a cruise and we were in, um, we were in Budapest and he, he, I said to my wife, this is going to be an expensive call. So, <laughs> He starts telling me, "Man, I'm getting I'm getting these calls to do clinics, but I, I don't want to, you know, I want to I don't want to say no that I can never do them. I just want to I can't do them now, but maybe you know, can you help me with this?" And I said, "Well, you should just have the guys at Yamaha or the guys at Zildjian." He said, "Well, you used to do this for me. Can you just can you do it?" And so we got into this conversation, and I said, "Steve, are you asking me to manage you again?" And he said, "Now, Johnny, don't go putting words in my mouth. Now, come on, now, don't." don't start that. So we kind of had this little laugh and I said, look, when I get back, let's talk and we'll, we'll figure something out. So I, I, I basically took on his, um, I took on kind of his drum business stuff. And one of the things we were working on in the beginning was he was putting out a record and he needed, um, just some marketing stuff for like logos and t-shirts and, um, just getting some industry support for different things. And, and those, those occasions where he can do a clinic or a master class or some sort of an appearance and I can, you know, kind of sort that out for him. And, and then when Peter got wind of it, he said, wait a minute, I want in on this, you know, and as, as Peter will. And in Peter's case, it's, it's much more extensive. It's, it's pretty much everything that Peter does other than if he gets called to do a session in LA, he's, 
you know, he, he deals with all that stuff, but, you know, he gets called to, to play concerts in, in, uh, you know, in London or Budapest or somewhere in Europe. And I take care of all the arrangements for him. And, and then the same with Danny and, and Rick. Um, and they're a little less active, those two guys, but, but I have to be honest, I, you know, I didn't intend to do this and I, I don't want to take on any more clients because I don't want to spend a lot of time, um, doing this job. I hope that doesn't come out the wrong way, but, um, i now have two grandkids and I'm playing in a band and I, I have a pretty full life, you know, as full as I want it to be. I'm, I'm not sitting around looking for stuff to do. Um, so it, it's, it's flattering when I get messages from old friends, drummers saying, Hey, I heard you doing this, this, uh, management thing or this representative thing can, you know, I'd love to get involved. And, uh, and I've had several really great drummer friends ask that. And I've, I've just said, you know, at this point right now, I'm, I, I just don't want to be back spending every minute of every day kind of yeah. doing a job. Yeah. Um, and John, this is what we call a good problem. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good problem. It is. I, I can't complain about anything. I really can't. It's, well, um, you're, you're just such an in-demand guy and, you know, I, and I want to get this on the record for my listeners, my loyal listeners who tune in, you know, week in and week out. That's how we met is, you know, I reached out to you and said, Hey, oh my God, how do we get Steve Gadd on the drum shuffle? <laughs> so I just want my <laughs> listeners to know that asked and answered. And, you know, maybe one of these days when, when Dr. Gad isn't quite so busy, we can, we can steal 45 minutes of his day, but, um, that's kind of how we got connected is through one of the drum forums. And, you know, just, it's always good to, to have those connections. And at the end of the day, I think what I want to get across to everybody is you're only about three emails away from anybody on earth. Truly. You know, if that's true and it's this business, you think, oh, the music business or drummers or whatever, it's such a huge industry. It's not the gear companies. It's a huge industry. It's not, you know, I mean, it's um, it's a small world. And if you if you, you know, I I don't want to end this on a negative, but if you do something to one guy that gets around pretty quick in the industry. Absolutely. You know, so you, you want to make sure that you're presenting yourself as a pro at all times. Um, John, I I can't thank you enough for your time. Our tradition, as always here on the drum shuffle, we always ask all of our guests for a good piece of advice. Lay on us, whatever you'd like, what should we all be doing as drummers, as musicians, as humans, whatever you want it to be? Well, I think you just said it. Um, I was going to make a joke and say, get a regular job. Don't be a drummer. <laughs> but, uh, well, that's no, but good I, advice too. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully my son, um, did just that, but, um, no, I, I think what you just said is, is really important and really key, Jamie, in that, um, you know, being, a, being a good person, being an honest person. Um, and, and there's a, there are many sort of facets to that, but certainly in the industry, being honest means if you get involved with a, with a company, endorsing a company, you know, don't, don't take advantage of it, you know, and, and, and don't, um, you know, don't there, I shouldn't say that there, there's, uh, there are people that do that. I mean, there's always people that are going to take advantage of a situation, I suppose, but for the most part, that's, that's not something people, uh, tend to do, but 
my point being that things like that do get around if you jump from company to company without the right justification for it. I mean, everybody talks to everyone. Um, people find out that so-and-so isn't really the easiest guy to deal with or easiest gal to deal with. So, uh, you know, people are more kind of, um, maybe cautious. Do you know what I mean? Is that? Yeah. Oh yeah, sure. Things like that. I, 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 but I think it all comes down to just simply being a good person, being an honest person. And, and the other thing that I would say, and I, I think I can say this from my own, from my own standpoint is, um, as a young drummer, I felt like as long as I practiced every day, I didn't really need to study with a teacher. I could, I could learn it all. I, you know, I, I knew how to play rudiments and I could, um, you know, I, I got by and I, I was playing in bands and, and people thought I was a good drummer. And when you're 16 or 17 years old and all your friends and even some other drummers tell you you're a good drummer, you start to believe it. And then you get older and you realize, oh man, was I wrong. And, uh, so you've and, read my biography then, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can, I, can, I can attest to it personally, Jamie. But, but I would say if I, could, if I could start all over again, I would absolutely study with a good teacher. I'd learn to read music well. I, I see now playing in the band I play in, just a little fun cover band, how much I could benefit um, from just being able to write a chart and learning songs because I, I've been around enough of my drummer friends to see you know, even my friend Rick Murata, when I see him play in the vineyard uh, with his brother, you know, he's he a song that they're going to do for the first time. He he writes a little chart and he he can get through it. Yeah. Um, and and I, I you know I can memorize parts pretty well, but I and it's something I haven't given up on. I, I'm seriously thinking I need to just sit down and just do it and just get the basics back to doing it. Well, you know, you've probably got some phone numbers in your personal communication device of great teachers that you could reach out to and probably get a lesson or two on the house. Just saying. I, I might be able to. I think you're right. <laughs> Let's put it this way. The, the pool of teachers you can pull from is probably a little bit different than the pool I can pull from. I'll, I'll just say that. Um, I, John, I, this has been so great. We've got to do it again. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I, I, do, I would love to do a part two with you at some point when your schedule will allow. You're welcome here anytime. Well, thank you. I, I would love to. And in fact, I, I feel like I, I ate up so much time on this one, probably talking about things people don't care too much about. So we can we can do another one and we can talk about more well, fun I, and interesting things. No, I think this has been completely um, just a perfect conversation. Um, it, it's just, it's infinitely interesting to me um, how your choices in life, you know, and, and this is kind of a running theme on our show, but you made the choice of, hey, you know, I don't read all that comfortably. I'm not going to go to Berkeley. So I'm going to go to work at a music store and look where you've ended up kind of thing. You, you know what I mean? It's everybody yeah. can't be a touring, recording, international superstar. And my point on this show is there's room for all of us in this big, huge family that we call drumming. And I just, I you know, it's infinitely um, enlightening to me to hear your story. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. We, we appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Jamie. Thank you again for having me. I, I, I've enjoyed it very much. Absolutely. We'll do it again real soon, okay? Sounds great. All right. Thanks so much, John.
All right. Thanks, Jamie. All right. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up episode 80 of the Drum Shuffle. As always, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this show without you guys checking us out every single week. We do appreciate it. As always, I'm going to ask you to hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in. You do not want to miss any of our episodes. Uh, We always try to bring you the very best guests in the drumming community each and every week. So uh, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We do answer every single email that we receive here at the Drum Shuffle. The Drum Shuffle podcast at gmail.com is our email address. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, click on those social media links and follow us on those platforms as well. We do try to keep social media going at all times. While I am on the subject of thanking folks, I wanna send a huge thank you out to a former guest and my buddy, Chad Gamble of Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit. Last week, I had the opportunity to catch a couple of their shows at the Ryman Theater down in Nashville, and Chad was so very gracious with his time. We got to visit uh, for quite a few minutes before their Wednesday night show. So thanks, Chad. We really do appreciate it. We're going to try to get Chad back here very soon to talk about all things Jason Isbell and the 400 unit. Make sure you tune in next week. I'm going to be joined by my good friend, Kent Oberly. So you're not going to want to miss that. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.